This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Available now from iHeart, a new series presented by T-Mobile for Business, The Restless Ones. Join me, Jonathan Strickland, as I explore the coming technological revolution with the restless business leaders who stand right on the cutting edge. They know there is a better way to get things done, and they are ready, curious, excited for the next technological innovation to unlock their vision of the future. In each episode, we'll learn more from the restless ones themselves and dive deep into how the 5G revolution could enable their teams to thrive. The Restless Ones is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And today we are granting listener requests, fairy godmother style. We've had a lot of requests for this particular subject, but here is a sample email from Lauren of Somerville, South Carolina, um, who said that she'd listened to our podcast on Rasputin, but I've learned of the youngest Romanov daughter, Anastasia, and the mystery that surrounds her. In 1917, when her family was murdered by the Bolsheviks, they never found Anastasia's body. Did she die, or was she actually Anna Anderson, a German woman who claimed to be Anastasia for her whole life since the murder? So Candace and Josh did a podcast on Rasputin, How Did Rasputin Really Die? But Lauren's right, that doesn't solve all of the mysteries of the Romanov family. So first, let's get ourselves a cast of characters. So the family in question, the Romanovs, ruled the Russian Empire from 1613 to 1917. But the guy we're talking about is Nicholas II, who succeeded Alexander III in 1894. And he also married his wife, Alexandra Fyodorovna, the same year. Together, they have five kids, Alexei, Olga, Tatiana, Maria, and Anastasia, who is perhaps the most famous today. Um, Alexei's the baby, and he's the only son, and he's the heir. Um, but he's a hemophiliac, which is something that he inherited from his ancestress, Queen Victoria. So he's not the best heir you could ask for. But the family is happy with their lot. When Olga was born, the Tsar supposedly said, I am glad the child is a girl. Had it been a boy, he would have belonged to the people. Being a girl, she belongs to us, which reminded us a lot of Anne Boleyn and Henry VIII. It, it may be an apocryphal quote, too. It's well, the kind of thing more that, than likely, but it's the kind of thing that's fun to say. Definitely. They were a pretty happy family all in all, but as rulers, not so much. And this book, History's Monsters by Simon Zibag uh, Montefiore, he called them inept, cruel, rigid, and obtuse reactionaries, which, you know, ouch. Yeah, most people agree that Nicholas just wasn't very well suited to his position. He's a timid man, which means that he's easily 
manipulated and taken advantage of. And Alexandra actually has a lot of power over him, and he has favorites in court who have a lot of power over him. So this makes people uncomfortable. And he was really out of touch with his own people. He believed in divine right. He had God-given power, so, you know, he did what he wanted because... He had God's blessing, and he listened to who he wanted, even if it wasn't maybe the best people. It wasn't the advisors. The best advice, yeah. Right. So he decided that anyone who disagreed with him was an enemy, with a capital E, and this does not breed happiness among his subjects. Yeah, needless to say, Nicholas is very unpopular, and his international relations are a mess. And this all brings us to the Russian Revolution of 1905, which kind of gets this story started. So in January 1905, the workers of St. Petersburg, which at the time was Petrograd, marched to the Winter Palace with demands for Nicholas. They said that they were still loyal to the Tsar, but that they wanted to elect a legislative assembly. So even these fairly moderate demands are not met well, and the Tsar's troops fire on them, kill 130, and it's called Bloody Sunday, and it ignites outrage in the Russian people. By October 1905, there's a general strike. The cities are shutting down because they have no workers. And Nicholas okays a legislative assembly. But don't think the monarchy is giving up that easily. On their side, they have the Black Hundreds, who were counter-revolutionaries and czarists, who had access to a lot of arms. They were made mostly of the wealthier class and some clergymen. And they go after students and left-wingers and... um have bloody pogroms against the Jews, and they're really not fond of Ukrainians either. So this repressive regime is just getting worse almost. But the revolutionaries are just as violent. There's a military mutiny and several political assassinations. So you could sum up this whole period with the phrase violent unrest, and this continues for a long time. But with that, we'd like to explain, I guess, why the Romanovs are so interesting. It's not because they're just part of these revolutions. It's, it's kind of out of touch for standing against the revolution. No, it's because they're weird. They're really weird. They're kind of a freaky family. Alexandra and Nicholas actually had a pretty happy marriage, but everyone else thought they were really bizarre. The Russians hated Alexandra because of her Germanness. Not only did was she a German, she also was a, a haughty, cold kind of person, or at least that's how the people thought of her. And she, she epitomized what Russians didn't like in about Germans. Germans. And the First World War didn't help. She was accused of being a spy. And perhaps unsurprisingly, because the people didn't like her, she didn't really like them back and didn't make much of an effort. So the fact that their only son and heir has hemophilia doesn't really endear Alexandra to her people either. The Russians want a good, strapping, healthy heir. And she has this invalid who she absolutely obsesses over. And she's, of course, blamed for it. And Alexandra, whatever you say about her, she does kind of have a right to obsess over this disorder. Um, it's it's very serious, and at the time, it was incurable. It's a bleeding disorder where your blood doesn't clot, and um, some variations can be mild, but in the most serious cases, you bleed internally and into your joints, and um, it's extremely painful. So her worries weren't unfounded. You know, this was a really serious thing for her son, but they kept his illness a secret, which probably made things seem very mysterious and very odd. Yeah, people would just to the outside wonder what world. was going on, and also why this child is being coddled so much. 
So they were always looking for ways to cure him, and when medicine failed him, the mystic Rasputin entered their lives, who supposedly could heal little Alexei. And we won't go into this story too much because of the other podcast, but Rasputin had a lot of power over the Romanovs and was a very strange and possibly evil man. He was murdered in 1916 after several attempts to kill him, but he wouldn't die, much like a cartoon character. Yeah, he, he keeps having that anvil falling his head. <laughs> and surviving. So uh, just to add to this rather damning case against the Tsar and his wife, people also think Nicholas II was impotent and Alexandra was a lesbian and that she had had sex with Rasputin to get her children. So there's just so much wrapped up around this couple. And also that all the daughters were having sex with Rasputin. And people had no idea, again, what was really going on in that palace. But as far as outward appearances go, they thought something was entirely out of whack. So again, behind all of this, the revolutions are still happening. The revolution of 1905 did not end in 1905, and neither did that unrest. The players change. Exactly. So then we have the Russian Revolution of 1917. And the government is very corrupt. Everyone hates the Tsar at this point. He's blamed for all the things he has done and the things he hasn't done. And it's also become very clear during the war that while the rest of Europe has been modernizing, Russia has not. That's something we talked about a little in our Crimean War episode. They were realizing that even then. It's it's especially clear to the (laughs) army, which is falling apart during warfare. There's also a food shortage, which is when the rioting started. And in this climate, Nicholas abdicated in March. His brother wouldn't take the throne. I wouldn't either if I'd been his brother. And the Romanovs are done. They have fallen completely out of power in the Russian Empire. So there's a power grab that happens. And to really simplify something that's quite complicated, the Bolsheviks and the left socialist revolutionaries um, are the winners. And uh, the Bolsheviks promise peace, land, and bread, which sounds like a pretty good deal. <laughs> you can you understand can't argue with that, how no. people would get behind that. So back to our family. Nicholas, of course, abdicated after the February Revolution, which was part one of the revolution of 1917. So now what? The family's on house arrest for five months in Alexander Palace, but in August 1917, they're sent to Tobolsk, Siberia. And the Bolsheviks have a uh, fateful decision to make at this point. Exile the royal family or kill them, kill the czar. And the family is a symbol, and because symbols are so important, you can see why this would be such a momentous decision. If you exile the family, they can always come back. You can have grandchildren come back, Mm -hmm. and it can go on for, for centuries. So in April 1918, they're still wavering on what to do, and they summon Nicholas away. Alexandra and Maria go with him to Ekaterinburg and the Urals, and the rest of the family doesn't join until May because Alexei was too sick to go before. And this is a big change for the royal family. There's not a lot of food. They're dressed in rags. They're not treated well. They're imprisoned in this house and don't have a lot to do. They spend a lot of time reading the Bible. And in July 1918, a man named Yakov Sverdlov signs off on the killing of the Romanov family. And um, at two o'clock in the morning, uh, a group of men come for the Romanovs. 
and the family, along with a few of their servants who had remained loyal to them and their doctor, are taken into a small room and shot to death. And according to Robert Massey's The Romanovs, the final chapter, uh, those who don't die in the first round of shots, which are the girls, are then bayoneted. Alexei is shot in the ear. Anastasia's maid is bayoneted 30 times after she survives the gunshots and tries to escape. And uh, the family's also disfigured. They're hit in the face with rifle butts. And Anastasia's dog is even killed. So just this really violent assassination of the family. Yeah, you have to picture this group, I think, what, 12 executioners, and then this family of nine in this teeny tiny room and all the blood. So the bloody, disfigured bodies were brought to a place called the Four Brothers, which was north of Ekaterinburg, and a place of swamps and peat bogs and mines. And when the bodies were stripped, the men found that the Romanov daughters had diamonds sewn into their corsets, which explained why the bullets weren't killing them, the jewels were deflicting them. Which is something I remember learning about when I was a kid and just being fascinated by... By this story. Always keep diamonds in your clothes, Sarah, always. The original Kevlar. They were also wearing amulets with Rasputin's picture on them. Again, this is all according to Massey's book. And the bodies were thrown down a mine shaft with grenades thrown after them. And by July 18th, it was announced at a meeting where Lenin was present that Nicholas had been executed, but that Alexandra and the children were safe. And this, it turns out to be a lie because... Lenin knew about the executions before they happened, knew about the executions of the whole family. Yes, this was kept up for a long time, that Lenin had no idea what was going this on, but it was all signed of... off on long before. Yeah. So on the 20th, the papers announced the death of Nicholas, but again, his family was reported to be alive. It wasn't until much later that the world found out that they were dead. So about a week after the executions, the counter-revolutionaries, the Whites, uh, capture Ekaterinburg and obviously search for the Romanovs, can't find them, but they do find their blood. And by January 1919, a real search has been launched at Four Brothers by the Whites. And they find little bits of jewelry, buckles, glasses, case, a finger, but no bodies. So where are they? And around the same time or shortly thereafter, there start to be rumors that some of the royal family has indeed escaped. A woman named Anna Anderson claims that she is Anastasia and she made it out alive. And there are several other Anastasia imposters that pop up over the years. Yeah, Anastasia somehow becomes the, the central figure of this story. But back to our question of the bodies. Word got out about where they'd been buried after they'd been buried. So one of the executioners went and moved them And they remained a secret for a very long time until someone found that same man's diary much later and pieced together where they might be. In 1991, nine bodies were discovered in the area. They were assumed to be Nicholas, Alexandra, three of the kids, their doctor, and three servants, which leaves us with two kids unaccounted for who were assumed to be Alexei and Anastasia. And in 1998, it was confirmed with DNA evidence that those were the Romanovs. And so the Romanov bones were buried in St. Petersburg. And there was a lot of controversy about this, about the burial. The church objected to it because it didn't recognize that these were the Romanovs' remains. And their names weren't said during the service. And a lot of people didn't buy the story that these were the Romanov bones. 
And um, in 2004, another study came out. And this group, also using DNA evidence, said that there was no way that these bodies could be the Romanov bone. Right. They thought the DNA evidence had been contaminated, and so you couldn't say with any certainty that that's who they were. So we have our, our story debunked just a little over a decade later. And in 2007, two more bodies were found, and these were positively identified as Alexei and one of the girls. The people who did this study said it was virtually irrefutable evidence. And all these bodies—all these bodies, by the way—are found around the Four Brothers area. As a result of these studies, we basically have three camps. So the first one. All the Romanovs were killed, and we found all of their remains. So the 1991 bodies, the real deal, and the 2007 bodies, the real deal. Everything's completely buttoned up. The second camp, all the Romanovs were killed, but we need more studies to find out if what we have is the real deal. And maybe we have some of the real bodies, and we don't have others. Yes, I'm in the second camp, for the record. (laughs) And the third camp was that some of the Romanovs escaped and went on to live lives elsewhere. But the woman we mentioned before, Anna Anderson, who's the most famous Anastasia imposter, really was an imposter. Mitochondrial DNA tests were done after her death, and it doesn't match at all the Romanovs. In 1977, the Apatyev house, where the Romanovs spent their last days, was demolished with a wrecking ball. And um, Yeltsin actually did it under Brezhnev's orders because it was still a place of pilgrimage. It was still a place where people went to, uh, I guess, celebrate the secretly the monarchists. In 2000, the Romanovs were named Holy Passion Bearers by the Russian Orthodox Church. And it's kind of like being martyrs, but martyrs are people who die for their faith, whereas Passion Bearers are people who still show great faith in the face of death. But our sort of interesting concluding point here, the big about face, is that in 2008, the Russian Supreme Court ruled that the Romanovs were victims of political repression. Um, Before that, I think people were focusing on the murders is just a random act, not a government-directed act. So it, it was a big step to, to, to admit take that responsibility. they were assassinated. Right. Yeah, exactly. And in 1999, a distant descendant of the Romanovs, I think he was an ancestor of um, Nicholas I, actually, told Newsweek, here's a pretty long quote for you, there was a certain logic to the murders from the Bolshevik point of view. Reaction to the revolution was still strong. They were being attacked from all sides, so destroying the Tsar, a symbolic figurehead, committed all those who participated in the revolution to an irreversible course. It's terrible to say it, but I understand their logic. It would have been too dangerous to leave the Tsar alive. But how they did it was a different matter. They murdered the family with the utmost barbarity, then tried to cover up the fate of the family and tried to pretend it was a local decision. It set the tone for future secretive state terror. And that's the final word on the Romanovs. But if you have some ideas on what you think happened to them, email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. And if you'd like to learn more about their creepy mystic, you should check out our article, How Did Rasputin Really Die? But that brings us to listener mail. So we have another comment for you on our Satchel Page episode. This is from Brian in New York, and it was left on the blogs. Um, he wrote after we said that Satchel reportedly pitched 
at uh, up to 105 miles per hour. If you're at 105 miles per hour, the highest recorded speed in recent history is 104.8, and that's in an era where pitchers take much better care of their arms, and even that one is widely acknowledged to be inflated, as it's 1.8 miles per hour higher than any other recorded pitch. The highest number I could find for Paige is 103, which is probably at or just beyond his actual one-pitch-in-a-lifetime top speed, at which, given the circumstances under which he was playing is certainly so stupefyingly impressive that it doesn't need embellishment. I wouldn't believe it if someone told me Paul Bunyan threw 105. So we thought that was pretty funny. So thank you for the clarification, Brian. If anyone else has anything to say about it, feel free to email us. We're also on Twitter if you'd like to follow us at Mist in History. And again, you should check out our Rasputin article on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Hey guys, I'm Shane Bacon, and I want to tell you about a new podcast called Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon. One guy that has probably hit a 350-yard drive, considers himself an athlete mostly because of his unreal papa shot abilities, and has in fact started to show off signs of a tricep forming, is our own Max Homa, PJ Tour winner and fan favorite online. Max and myself turn out new episodes every week to give the fan a unique look at golf and all that comes with it from someone that spends his work weeks on tracks we all dream to play, grinding and out with the best in the world. Listen and follow Get a Grip with Max Soma and Shane Bacon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts right now. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep-dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand, and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal, and they're candid, and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.